This is the Australian Surrogacy Podcast. My name is Sarah Jefford and I'm a surrogate and a surrogacy lawyer. In this episode, I had the pleasure of chatting with Raya, who is an intended parent and she's about to meet her baby within the next week or so. Her surrogate is her sister-in-law, Lara, who I will interview at a later date, perhaps sometime during the fourth trimester, to hear her side. Anyway, I'm going to hand over now to Raya and she can tell the story of how her sister-in-law became her surrogate. So my name is Raya and I'm a project manager. I'm married to David and we have a beautiful dog, Whiskey. We live in Melbourne and... Raya, how did you come to surrogacy? So we've had a lengthy journey. Um, It's been roughly four and a half years. Uh, We started trying naturally. We tried naturally for a good 12 months and when nothing was happening, we went and saw our first RE. And from there, they diagnosed us with unexplained infertility and told us that the best thing to do is IVF. And that's where we kind of started um, our infertility pathway, if you like. Uh, So we started at a clinic and we did um, an egg retrieval with them. We managed to get a large number of eggs in that first cycle, something like 30 eggs or something. I had hyperstimulation. Um, and then when they went to do IVF, normal IVF, which is uh, where they just put the sperm and the eggs together in a petri dish, none of the eggs fertilised. So, yeah, so we got um, a phone call the next day and it was devastating to find out that none had fertilised. They don't really have an explanation, but more, more so they just think that the sperm and the egg has some kind of a communication breakdown. Uh, where they don't tell each other that they're next to each other. They were happily swimming around next to each other, all healthy, but they just didn't recognise each other. So there was no fertilisation happening. Obviously, we were so devastated, but in some ways that was diagnostic. We were able to at least understand why we weren't falling pregnant naturally, why we'll never fall pregnant naturally. So they said to us that the fix to that is doing ICSI, which um, basically where the sperm and the egg are injected um, together and we ha- we helped them fertilize. So we did a subsequent cycle, brand new egg retrieval. I have stimulated again. I got a large number of eggs again, and luckily that with ICSI we fertilized quite a number of embryos, and we ended up with something like ten embryos that we could freeze. We didn't test those embryos, so we did no PGS testing on those embryos. We were told we were young, we don't need to. Everything was healthy. We were otherwise healthy, so no need. So we froze all of them straight away because I hyperstimulated, which means I couldn't have an embryo transfer straight away. And the next month, we transferred one of our embryos and I had a negative. The month after that, we transferred uh, one of our embryos and I got um, a positive pregnancy result. So um, obviously we were very happy, went to the six-week scan, heartbeat was great. And then around the eight-week mark, I started bleeding. Um, went to have a scan and uh, a couple of scans later the heartbeat was gone and so they called it miscarriage and I had a DNC and we tested that and it was an abnormal embryo so for us it was kind of devastating but there was a sort of a, a life there in sense that I got pregnant and yes it was abnormal but let's just 
keep going. Did another transfer with that doctor, had a chemical pregnancy. Did get another transfer with that doctor and had a negative result. And at that point, uh, six months into all of this, I was feeling like maybe we need to change something. Something needs to be different. And it wasn't really that the clinic was bad or anything like that. They were fantastic, to be honest. Um, but we were doing the same thing over and over and not getting any different results. So we decided to change clinics and we did that. We changed clinics and we decided to do a fresh transfer. So we were careful with my protocol to make sure I didn't hyperstimulate. We did another egg retrieval cycle. We did a fresh transfer and I fell pregnant again. Um, but I started bleeding pretty much around the six, seven week mark and we went in for our first scan and there was a very small um, indication of a heartbeat. They couldn't even measure it really at that stage, but they could see it flutter. And they kind of, there was a bit of a, it was a bit of a tough time because for about two weeks we were going back and forth trying to see if this embryo would be viable enough, this pregnancy is viable. At the end we called it that it wasn't viable and I had another miscarriage and another DNC. I chose a DNC the second time around because I had a good experience the first time around. Everything healed really quickly. Um, I had no issues. So I chose to do it again. Uh, and from that point, I didn't get a normal period. So I think for about two months, I didn't get a period at all. And then when I did get it, it was completely different to what I was used to. My body had just changed on me and I knew something wasn't right. And we kept going back to the same doctor and she kept reassuring us that this is a normal thing. It can happen after DNC, just be patient, you know, all this stuff. But my lining never got past five to six mil. And I knew from experience that my lining could get to eight to nine mil. And I knew that that's what we needed basically for the best chance of a pregnancy. But we, were, we just kept, I mean, you trust the experts, right? And we just get, kept being told it, that it's fine. You just have to keep trying and trust me and relax, <laughs> which is the worst thing anyone can say to you, let alone a doctor. But anyway, she did say that. She said, go, you know, go take a holiday. So we went on a big holiday for a month in, to the States and came back and I felt like maybe this is seen, this is going to happen. And still my lining was five to six mil and not no longer trilamina, which is the right structure that it's supposed to be. So completely like different. Um, we did a couple of a couple more egg retrieval cycles with this doctor and we tested our embryos and we got normal embryos. So we were happy that we could do that. But I still felt like I needed someone else to have a look at me. And so we went to a third clinic. We ended up at Melbourne IVF um, with an amazing doctor. And she, we did another cycle with her because she wanted to see how my body responds. Same thing. But we did collect some embryos in that, which is good. And then she did a hysteroscopy on me and found out that I have Asherman syndrome, which is basically scarring of the uterine wall that happens due to damage. And that damage occurred in my second DNC that I had. Um, I can't really say that, you know, I can go back to that doctor and say anything because at the end of the day, there are risks. There are inherent risks with a DNC. You know that when you sign off on it, you don't expect anything to go wrong but there is that percentage of risk. 
and my ashamones is moderate to severe. So it's it's enough that I can no longer hold a pregnancy at all. And we did try a couple of embryo transfers with this new doctor and it just didn't succeed at all. I didn't even get a chemical. And so we just we just kind of said, I don't think it's going to work. And she drew a line in the sand. She said to us, if you really want to be a mum and you really want to have a baby, then what other options can you explore? And that's how we came to surrogacy. And we spoke to Lara and her husband, but they had already offered us to be our surrogate. They had offered us after my first miscarriage. And back then, you know, we were at a particular journey. It was two years after that that we actually ended up going into surrogacy. But at the time, I had fallen pregnant. We knew that it was abnormal. So we had every hope that it would happen for us. So we thanked Lara for her beautiful, generous offer. But we didn't think that we would need it. And I think... As, as much as Lara was 100% genuine in her offer, there was always this, you know, it's out there, but it's not real, you know. And so when we came to that decision that we needed to find a sur- well, perhaps surrogacy, I called Lara and I said, uh, is the offer still on the table? <laughs> and she said, of course. And we had a nice long chat with her and her husband and they were so on board and we went we started the journey and we went through the surrogacy process from there it was very easy which I, i'm very lucky i'm very lucky mm, amazing so tell me about lara she's your husband's sister is that right that's right she's my sister-in-law um she is a couple of years younger than dave my husband and yeah, so it's nice to have somebody who is, who I know, who I trust, obviously inherently trust because she's, you know, she's my sister-in-law. Um, I've seen her in all three pregnancies that she had for her children. She's a wonderful, wonderful mum. She's a super mum. So I just knew that our baby would be in the best of hands, the best. And it just, yeah, it's another reason why I was lucky. Like, I know my surrogate. I see her all the time. We talk all the time. So I was involved. Mm. So I don't think I've interviewed parties where they've been um, sister for, or surrogate for the sister-in-law and brother. So tell me, what's the dynamic like between you? Was the relationship fairly solid before she became your surrogate? And has it changed much during the surrogacy? It was always solid. Lara's an amazing person, just generally. She gets along with anyone. <laughs> She's just one of those people that you just like, you, you, first time you meet her, you feel like you've known her for years. And I always felt close to Lara. And Lara's a lot like Dave. So they have, um, they're very different, but they complement each other. They have personalities that are very similar. They're both very affectionate, very warm, very open. And that's what Lara's like. So I've always had a very strong relationship with her. My husband has always had a very strong relationship with Lara. They've they've got another brother, an older brother, and the three of them have always been very close. Um, But Lara and Dave have a particular um, rapport that they've always had. And then, of course, we embarked on this massive journey. And we, I have to say, can't can't be stronger as a team. I mean, the, the four of us, and it includes Lara's husband, Adam, because he, he is just equally as involved in this as anyone else, you know. 
the four of us have formed a team. We call ourselves Team Baby, and and we really we really just it it's just gone from strength to strength our relationship. And you can't really not have a close relationship through this because I mean all things all you can't. There's no more. Um, it's not hiding anything, you know. When Lara, when we go to the scans, Lara's there, my husband's there, and kind of get quite intimate. <laughs> and so, really, it's like the kind of thing that you have to, you've got to get close and you've got to accept it, and everything flies out the window. And I mean, we've been amazing. Now, amazing. I'm going to be able to interview Lara in a few weeks, so I'll find out about her experiences as well. But have you noticed any difference in her relationship with your partner? The sort of the sibling relationship is quite special anyway, but it yeah. must be quite different when he's watching his sister carry his baby. What's that like, do you think? I mean, he has his own, you know, um, feelings about it. it, it it's not... It, it's, I know he doesn't think it's easy in the sense that it's a strange event, you know. No one ever expected we'd be here. Of course, he would never have even thought that this would happen for him. And to see his sister pregnant, and he's seen her pregnant three times, and every time it's always been, oh, you know, my nephew, my niece. Now it's like this is my child. And so, of course, he has a, a, it's just strange it's unique really the way he describes it to me is he feels it's surreal that's the best way to describe it I feel the same really there's a bit of detachment and there's always a detachment with the husband of a you know a, a, a um, heterosexual couple there's always that detachment because you know they're not pregnant but there's an extra detachment here because you know it's, it's not even me he can't go to bed and rub my tummy or any of that so we're both quite detached from it in a sense, even though intellectually we understand it's our baby. So, yeah, I think their relationship has always been strong. It's much more involved, if you like, now. Um, Lara is very open and so she'll tell him, you know, how, what all the feelings are and, you know, all the different symptoms and when she's feeling unwell, why. <laughs> she's had to um, prep us for the birth you know, because we're going to be in the room and we have no idea what to expect. And so she's been very good at basically teaching us that this is what will happen. I'm going to be in a lot of pain. You're going to see me at my, you know, all dignity goes out the window kind of thing. And, and Dave has to contend with that because this is his sister and there's a modesty thing. And, but I think in the moment you just, you just have to let it play out. And so, you know, I, mean, I think this is all credit to Lara really at the end of the day that she's able to go into this knowing how huge it is and and still have the same relationship with her brother she did before. Nothing has changed. If anything, it's gotten better. It's amazing. Mm. Um, because you went fairly quickly from diagnosis to Lara offering or knowing that there was an offer on the table did you ever feel like you had to process your own feelings about not being able to carry did, was there an opportunity to do that oh absolutely there were emotions around that it's the thing about infertility and IVF is it's, it's all a process of letting go of things so my first thing to let go of was I will never get pregnant naturally 
And then, of course, after the miscarriage and after everything else, it was starting to look like I will never get pregnant at all. Um, and there was a lot of fear in, in, in me that I'll never have a baby. I'll never be a mother. Um, did I process it fully before we embarked on surrogacy? Not necessarily. I mean, I think I'm still kind of a little bit um, contending with the whole idea of it, that I won't be pregnant ever. How will we have our second child, you know, if we want one, which we do, but we may have to be very happy and we will be with our one child. So I don't think you ever kind of really process it fully. But what I, what I, what has happened is that I no longer feel like I can never be a mother. And that was the overwhelming fear through all of this journey. And so, yeah, I can't get pregnant, but I've been able to let that go. And I've been able to move past that. And I think um, I've had the time to really, to really understand it and accept it. Now I say this now, but it's been a harrowing mental health journey for me. And I can explain all of that to you too. But yeah, it's been a quite a, a long growth. Mm, I can imagine. <laughs> Were you given a lot of support from the clinic counsellors or did you have to access support elsewhere? No, I mean, look, it was, it's always accessible with the clinic. They offer the, the counselling and you do have to, through surrogacy, there's a lot of counselling just to establish the, the intention of all the parties um, and to go through all of the motions that we might have to go through. But, you know, even, even before surrogacy, there's always an offer on the table for counselling after every sales cycle, for example, from every IVF clinic. But I have to say... Um, and I think this is something that, you know, I'd love to see change, that the support isn't really significant enough. And I say that because it's a very unique kind of pain and emotion. It's very hard to describe unless you are going through it what kind of pain it is. And so when you do see a counsellor, whilst they are versed in the whole IVF process and everything, they don't really get it and, and not in a bad way. They just don't really get it unless we're going through it. And so I actually found that my biggest support network were women that are going through the same thing as me. And I found um, a, pod, a podcast and a, um, like a community um, called Beat Infertility that helped me a lot more than any counsellor and any psychologist that I saw through this whole thing. It's just because you just need that person that gets gets the thoughts that you're having and they're dark you know um so yeah I, I had the support from from my family my friends and everything the best support was those that got me mm. really and I uh, went through infertility myself 10 years ago and at the time they didn't Sorry. really have Facebook groups but there were mm. Forums, so I found one of the parenting forums where they had infertility threads. And you're right, that's exactly where I got my main support was other mm -hmm. I was doing. Yeah. So yeah. you're at the pointy end of pregnancy because Lara is going to be giving birth sometime in the next week. How exciting. That's amazing. How are you feeling about that? I have no idea how to feel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm floating on this like, like, cloud and I think I'm very excited and I think I'm ready but I also think that I'm not I'm way too calm 
<laughs> it's like my life is about to be turned upside down in the best of ways, let's, let's be honest. But, you know, I just don't feel like I've processed it. And I think it is a little bit to do with that, di- that disconnect that I have because I'm not pregnant myself. And, I mean, that's probably very normal. So I'm just taking it day by day and accepting whatever I feel. You know, I've got everything ready. I've busied myself with the house. We're, we're ready for the baby. We're just uh, mentally, I'm kind of cruising. So I'm hoping that as soon as I get that baby in my arms, it'll just click, you know. It will. It'll totally make sense when yeah. baby's in the arms. So what's That's the most good. challenging thing been about the surrogacy in the last, well, since it started? For me, personally? Yes. Yeah. Um, for me, personally, the most challenging thing has been not knowing how to help and be there for Lara. There's only so much I can do as a, a bystander almost. You know, I want to be there for her through all of the aches and pains. But really, she just, she, she says to me, you know, there's nothing really you can do. You, you have to just let it happen. And so all I've been able to do is those little like things. I'll babysit for her and we'll, you know, I'll buy her lollies, which she loves and stuff like that. But I feel a bit useless. And that's been the really the hardest thing. Um, the second hardest thing is the fact that I'm not pregnant and I feel a bit detached. And I think the most, the most difficult thing is I don't want to, nobody wants to be hassled constantly, like, what are you feeling now? Is it kicking now? Is it, you know, as much as I really want to be there every second, just touching Lara's belly, it's, you know, not going to happen. So it's been a bit difficult in that sense only because it's not viable that I'm there all the time and I'm asking a million times the same question. But having said that, Lara is amazing because I will call her sometimes and I just want to know, have you felt any kicks today? And she'll tell me yes and they were kicking a lot more in the morning and, you know, um, so they're really the two main difficult parts. Everything else has just been surprisingly beautiful. Every scan is amazing. Every time I see Lara, she's, you know, her belly's grown a little bit. It's just a sense of, you know, I feel like it's like Christmas is coming and we're waiting for that one day. You know, all my Christmases are coming at once right now. That's how I feel. Um, It's been amazing. That's amazing. Do you have any advice for intended parents that are uh, researching their options for surrogacy? Unfortunately for me, I I didn't have to look far. I was very lucky to have someone offer. Um, and I guess the thing that I would suggest is that to understand that it does take time and that there's a lot involved. Uh, I was a little bit surprised, I guess, or taken aback by the process and how much red tape and stuff there was to do, you know, how many appointments we had to make before we even got to that stage where we were transferring an embryo. Um, it's all worth it, obviously. You, you know, but don't be surprised if it's an eight-month, nine-month thing before you even start. How you find a surrogate, I'm not sure, but I am part of a Facebook community um, called Surrogacy Australia. I'm not sure, actually. Oh, it's um, the Australian Surrogacy many. Community. Yes. That's it. Thank you. Yeah. And I know I've seen intended parents, um, you know, introduce themselves and what, uh, what their journey has been and there are you know, potential surrogates out there that 
want to be altruistic and help a couple, which is just phenomenal. I'm in awe of anyone who does it. I mean, you've done it and you're just an amazing person. And I just can't believe that women women do this for someone else. It's just, I don't know, I could never understand it really. I mean, I would do it now that it's happening with me. I could see why anyone would want to do it for someone. But it still amazes me. Mm. Um, so thank you for chatting with me. I'm so excited for you for your news in the next week or so. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank you and so much. Good luck. Thank and you. I will hear about it from Lara when I interview her shortly. For sure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Australian Surrogacy Podcast. If you are looking for more information, you can find it on the blog. Listen to more podcast episodes at sarahjefford.com. You can also find me on Facebook and on Instagram. And if you want to get in touch, you can find me at sarah at sarahjefford.com.